I will read the passage uh, from which the scripture, uh, from which the sermon is coming this morning. This is from John 11. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, Jesus said to her. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of this blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Since Christmas in the run-up to Easter, we have been looking at who Jesus is. There are many ideas in the world many books, movies, all kinds of um, competing, conflicting, contradictory ideas about Jesus. So we're going to the source. Who did Jesus say he was? Because each one of us has to make a decision. Each one of us has to come to terms. He's not just a teacher. If he was just a teacher, as C.S. Lewis points out, he said some crazy things. Here, in the final one of the sayings that we're looking at, he claims that he is the resurrection, the answer to death. And it's appropriate that we're looking at this as we are in the run-up to um, Easter. In this passage, Jesus is down the bottom of the mountain in Bethany, close to the Jordan River. 
And he's about to climb up that mountain to Jerusalem, be received by Jerusalem as he rides on a donkey with palm leaves laid on the ground. And then, of course, beginning the journey to the cross and resurrection. And as he's taking that journey, we metaphorically take the journey with him and try to understand who he is and how he could go on such a journey. It's a journey all of us will go on one day. And so you should think of these sayings as a resource. They're little parables, seeds planted in our imagination, illustrating who Jesus is, stories that we spend the rest of our life unpacking, that are there for us in good times and bad times, when we face crises, when our, when our lives and our worlds are not working. Jesus' sayings about himself are seeds that will grow in our imagination and give us resource to deal with what happens to us. He said he was the bread of life, that he is the bread of life. We celebrate that every time we go to the Lord's table. That he's the light of the world. That he's the gate or the door that everybody must find and pass through. That he's the good shepherd, whose flock know his voice and who follow him home. That he is the way, the truth, and the light. That he's the vine that provides spiritual life to all who are engrafted into him. And this morning, that he's the resurrection and the life beyond death. So let's look at it. I'm not going to go through the whole passage, just uh, some highlights. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So this is the final charge. This is Jesus on his way to the cross. He knows it. He has been explaining it to his disciples. In fact, many of his teachings during this time are there to prepare his disciples to understand and interpret what's about to happen, to comfort them, to give them promises that are going to help them through what's about to happen. And so this is sort of the calm before the storm. As I said, Bethany is at the foot of the Temple Mount, right down by the Jordan, close to where Jesus was um, baptized. This is the area where people came out of Jerusalem to hear John the Baptist. And so Jesus had been there many times. He knew Mary and Martha. There are a number of stories about their encounters with each other, and he loved them. He cared about them. So this wasn't just another person dying. This would have been a personal tragedy for them and for Jesus, who had stayed at this home many times. You can think about this passage as sort of setting in motion what's about to happen. Jesus is teaching his disciples and Mary and Martha and all of us something about death and resurrection, something about what he is going to go through. Particularly in the 
Gospel of John, this is a climax. Jesus performs a series of miracles to reveal himself. And John carefully puts them in a sequence, seven miracles demonstrating Jesus' power. And this is the final one. His first is when he converts wine into uh, water into wine at the wedding in Cana. As Jesus looks ahead to the great feast of the Lamb, he heals a sick son, showing his power over disease. He heals a man who is infirm, showing his power over infirmity. He feeds 5,000. He is the bread of life. He is enough for all our needs. He walks on water, showing his power over nature and calms a storm. He heals a blind man and shows that he is indeed the light of the world. And here, with Lazarus, Jesus begins his dispute with death and shows who has the power in that dispute. It's like you have these huge um, narratives, these huge cogs of history that are coming together. All the prophecies, all the promises of the Bible, all the miracles, all the teaching is coming to a climax to reveal Jesus and who he is. But there's a problem. Jesus shows up late. In this first slide... When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? You're too late. He's already dead. Mary will say the same thing. On our third slide, verse 32, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The climax of history, everything being revealed and resolved, and Jesus is late. Where is he? If you read the passages that begin this chapter, it's uh, John 11 when Jesus is explaining things to his disciples, we read this. This is John 11, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Lazarus was ill, but Jesus didn't move. He stayed with his disciples and waited for two days. Then a little later, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. I'm glad I wasn't there. Is Jesus so cruel? He's using the death of a close friend a family member of a family he had stayed with, just to demonstrate things to his disciples? Of course, no, and we see it perhaps most clearly in verse 34. That's the fourth slide. 
when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus did care. This was not some cold, abstract demonstration. Lazarus was not some elaborate sermon illustration. He knows he is going to bring joy and triumph over death. But he also knows the pain and the misery of death, the obscenity of death, because death is antithetical to everything that Jesus, the Lord of life, brings into the world. He's the Lord of life, the God of creation, human flourishing, human joy, human potential, growth. Death is everything that Jesus came to defeat, everything that he fights against, everything that is antithetical to him. And that's why he wept. It's not just a stale, cold demonstration. And also, notice, Jesus is not some detached Buddha-like figure. There's no serenity here. There's no impersonal contemplation of life and death. Jesus is enmeshed in life and death, enmeshed in people's suffering. He cares. He cares about Mary and Martha. He cares about Lazarus. And he's going there with a purpose. Back to the first line, verse 23. Jesus said to her, he's talking to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Notice that Martha believes before she's seen Lazarus' resurrection. Why? Because she loves Jesus, and she knows Jesus, and she has put her faith and her trust in him. She has recognized him as the Messiah, as God. And she trusts that whatever he wills will come to pass. And I'd like like to just pause a minute to consider this. It is often the case that people will come to me or come to our church or come to our diaconate, uh, the servants of our church, when they've got a problem, when they've got a crisis, when they've lost their job or they're sick or somebody they love is ill or has, God forbid, died. They come looking to God because their life has been turned over, turned upside down, disrupted. I've got to tell you, it is very, very hard for such people to find God. Some of them do, but it's very hard. And the reason is, they are looking for God 
through the lens of what they're suffering. And they can't but help ask a question. How can your God, and it's always your God, it's not their God, how can your God let my auntie die? Let my father lose his job, as we heard about Lindsay. Let a child get sick. Let an earthquake happen, or typhoon, or whatever it is. How can your God let that happen? And the search falls right at the first step because the problem of suffering, the problem of death, the problem of evil is so overwhelming that it makes it hard for such people to see God. Notice when Martha is with Jesus, before anything else happens, she's put her faith in Jesus. The only way faith ever triumphs is if you start with who God is. If you look at problems, if you look at evil, if you look at situations and circumstances from the perspective, through the lens of God's love, and then you can begin to come to terms with it. You have to start with what you know about him. You have to start with being grounded in him. Let me give you an example. It's a terrible example. It's a very beautiful though. So in 1873, there was a Christian lawyer in Chicago, Horatio Spafford. And he had a wife and four children. And he sent them on a luxury liner, the Ville d'Arve, from New York to France. So this is back in 1873. This is before e and GPS and all the stuff that we take for granted now. And in the middle of the Atlantic, it struck another ship and went down in less than 30 minutes. So there's Miss Bafford on this boat with four children. Um, she's on the deck as the boat is sinking, and the, as the waves come across the deck, three of her children are immediately swept away from her. She's only got one. The boat sinks and begins to flip over, She's got her little girl. She's holding on to her. Four times this little girl is washed out of her hands, but she managed to grab hold of her nightdress and pull her back. Fifth time it ripped, and Mrs. Spafford is alone holding on to the hull of this sunken ship. She's, she falls unconscious. The waves overcome her, and she thinks she's dead. Except the ship that struck her ship stopped. It wasn't damaged as much. And they rescued all the people who were rescued, including Mrs. Spafford. So finally, the ship she's on reaches Cardiff, which is in Wales. And she, along with the other survivors, send their first messages out, the people that they love. And she sends a telegram to her husband, Horatio Spafford, back in Chicago. And it has two words on it, saved alone. That's all that she has a chance to send because all these people are trying to contact America. Saved alone. So what does Horatio Spafford do? His response is to write a hymn of praise to God. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my loss, 
thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, the trials come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. How could he do that? Four children. How could a man who's just lost four, lost four children write those words? Because his life and his wife's life were already rooted in faith and belief in God. They looked at this tragedy, not naked, but through the lens of God's love for them. They looked at what we would, many of us, would be completely overwhelmed by from the perspective of foundation. They were rooted in Christ and his love and his resurrection. Spafford, I'm not, I don't know what happened to his wife. Horatio Spafford had put on what Paul in his letter to the Ephesians calls the full armor of God. He was, you can never be ready for something like that. But he was not alone and he was not naked. And he was able to stand strong in faith despite what happened because he was prepared. He was ready. He already knew what he believed about Jesus and Jesus' love. He already believed what he needed to believe. Paul puts this in Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. The stakes in this life are high. And suffering and evil are terrible realities, capped off for all of us by one day, death. And Christianity does not shy away from that terrible reality. It's not a big happy hug in the sky. Becoming a Christian does not mean you and I will not suffer. It is a broken world. We will suffer. People we love will get hurt. People we love will die. Christianity is clear-eyed about that fact. But Christianity has an answer. Stand firm in the God that you know, the God who has revealed himself, the God who has shown himself worthy of our faith. That's what Jesus is teaching in this passage. And notice what Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to fight against the devil. Jesus does that. You just have to stand. 
We're going to look at this after Easter, by the way. The first sermon series I ever remember hearing was the full armor of God, Ephesians 6. So probably it's time for me to preach on it. We'll do this after Easter. But the main point of the passage is it's not about us fighting. It is about us standing firm because we are rooted in what we know. The belt of truth, the truth of the gospel that holds every other part of the armor together. The breastplate of righteousness, righteousness so that you can stand up no matter what the accusation. The shield of faith, faith that defends us against any attack. And the only weapon that we are given, the sword of truth, scripture. So that if we have all these elements of armor, we can stand when that terrible day comes. And that's all we have to do. Because we're not asked to be heroes. We're just asked to be faithful and take our stand with Jesus, the true hero. Let's look at the third slide. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. It says the same thing later in verse 38. Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. Why, why is this, these verses significant? Well, you can get the idea when you read this passage, you know, weeping Jesus. Vulnerable little victim, he's going to die one day, he sees death, and he's passive, and, you know, Christians turn the other cheek, and that's not what's happening here. There is a particular word being used. Where it says deeply moved in spirit, it's a Greek word, embri myomai. Deeply moved doesn't do justice to it because it literally refers to the snorting of horse before battle. And when it is used of a person, it means anger. It means outrage, furious indignation. This is not Jesus gentle, meek, and mild. This is furious Jesus. This is angry Jesus. Why is he so angry? Because Lazarus is dead. A holy God of life will not stand quiet before evil, before death. Jesus was good. He was gracious. He was forgiving. He was holy, but he was also righteous. And he is not going to stand around where death is present. He has a furious indignation against death having hold of one of his. This is the indignation of a mother who sees someone hurting a child, a surgeon who sees cancer in a patient. He does not negotiate. He does not play nice, and he is not going to back down. With Lazarus, there's a dispute of a, a person who is dying, who has died. But Lazarus one day will die again. What Jesus is showing us 
is that one day he is going to drive right through the very center of death. Not a dispute, a demolition of death. Slide 4, verse 38, if I could. Jesus, once more, deeply moved, and Ramayamai, furious, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. One of the commentators said he had to say Lazarus because every tomb would have given up the dead if Jesus had said anything else. Just one man, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now Lazarus died again, one man. This was a dispute, a confrontation between Jesus and death. And he got his man back. But he is about to go up that hill. He's about to go to Jerusalem. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to face death for all men. All of us. And he's not going to dispute this time. He's going to charge right through the middle. So there'll be no more death. There'll be no more suffering. And everyone that follows him, everyone that puts their faith in him, has nothing to fear. Paul puts it this way. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That's the promise of Easter. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are our hero, our champion, that the victory is yours, so that we don't have to be heroes. We don't have to be champions. We just have to be faithful. Lord, show us how to be men and women of faith. Show us how to follow in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.